Yeah, so this is this is uh, West Underground. Um, probably fifty percent of the time, it's the waiting game which we're currently in. <laughs> it'll be so worth it, though, Hamish. I yeah, think it, will it will be, be. so will worth be. it. I heard Charlie Watts say that that's what was the what you know being in the Stones is like. You know, fifty percent waiting around. I feel like if if you're Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, then people should be waiting for you, you know? Yeah. I feel I feel like they would have turned up on time for enough things. Yeah. They turn up, they turn up late and Charlie goes, this will be the last time away for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, no, I'm, I'm excited about today's guest, man. He's, uh, he's been very, very influential for me over the last year. He's been a... He's just an absolute marvelous bloke, and I I, I want to get these compliments out the way before before he joins us. All right, no. <laughs> well, he's going to appreciate this, man, because at least you didn't say anything nasty before we started the interview. At least, <laughs> yeah, and then and then pretended to be really nice to him. Yeah, <laughs> but I I made I made a point of when when we were organising this, I said yeah. to him, you know. When when we came on with the Grand Union, uh, when when I was when I was a guest, yeah, before before the British invasion of West Underground, um, how how highly I thought of Michael, and I kind of went on a rambling, bumbling, loving five minutes of praise. So uh, yeah, like I say, man, I think I think it's I think it's right to have him on. I think for for people to see who he is and what he does will be will be huge. Beautiful, man. And um, I've kept myself in the dark for this one, like really in the dark other than yeah, other than what you've told me, man, I've, I've chosen to, to not look into it at all because, because I want to be the, I want to be probably what the, what the, you know, the average viewer is going to, you know, be thinking as well. Like you're, you're somebody who's in the know, who knows this, uh, you know, who knows this fellow quite well. And I'm going to be the polar opposite here and be like, so what do you do? You know what I mean? Like I'm going to be on the opposite side. Just be what, are your, what are your hopes and dreams? Yeah. And just be like, so how'd you do that? You know, where he's yeah. probably told you exactly how he's done something. So. <laughs> no, I, as I said, man, I think he's a very, very interesting guy. He's, he's, a, he's a brilliant man. So yeah. uh, let's welcome on. All right. Hello and welcome to another episode of West Underground. Today we have none other than Michael Carpenter with us. He's joining us in his studio. He's got a fantastic backdrop there. I, I was quite jealous, you know. <laughs> I can see the drums, get the drums back there. Yeah. Oh, mate, it, it is it's beautiful scenery you got there behind you. Thank you. I'm just trying to count how many guitars you got in the background, but you know, I'm I'm I'm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's only that wall. You're not seeing this wall or that wall. Oh, fuck like, yeah. So there's more there. And then there's more there. Oh so, my god. There's a few. I think we're up to I think there's about 46. Jesus. In here. Now, Michael, before we go any further, I just want to wish you a happy birthday. Thank you happy very much. Happy birthday, my friend. Oh, happy Remember, birthday. Trip around the sun. Thank you very much. I won't much. say how many. How no, many it's okay. I'm, I'm, in my, I'm in my 40s. I'm 40, 15. He looks amazing, doesn't he? He looks so good. 
So good. And mustacheless. Yep. So I've, I've, uh, Hamish, I've, and all the all the uh, viewers and listeners out there for the last couple of years with lockdowns, I've been exploring, um, you know, the the powers of the male facial hair journey. And so last year I had a massive, massive yeah. little beard, and then. Um, over the last year, uh, sorry, not the year before last, I had the big beard and then I had the big, stupid, chopper reed skunk Baxter moustache. But now I'm clean-shaven. Ah, nice, man. Well, I, I'm just jealous that you can grow any facial hair. I'm polar opposite. I can't grow a single thing. I don't let it yeah, grow for a week. Look, look at your beautiful locks, both of you. Look at well, mine. That's, just, that's compensation, mate. <laughs> but, mate, my chest hair, geez. <laughs> also I didn't, Jack I didn't, could... I didn't realize we were doing one of those podcasts to be honest <laughs> let's turn it into OnlyFans very fast <laughs> I, I just oh Jack we should give you a shout out mate this is your first I, I suppose interview being on the other side of the camera so give it up for Jack yeah thanks mate thank you it's nice to be here as as i've said to you before it's good that the british have invaded australia once again taking away all the jobs and there i am sitting in my room loving it with the with the merchandise on so yeah man it's really good to be here and michael you mate you i i, I was saying I, i've said it to hamish and I, I said it on on like the prelim before you came on how highly I think of you and how talented you are as a producer, as a musician. And Thank really, you. I, I, I want to know how, how it came to be. How did Michael Carpenter come to be? It's a funny thing. Like I, I, feel, I feel very fortunate about a lot of aspects of my life, but one of the things that has been really, I guess, interesting from my point of view is I kind of always knew that this was gonna, what I was going to do. I mean... I am a 55-year-old guy, but my first, first memory, so I was born in 67, but my first memory is being upset that the Beatles broke up in April 1970. Yeah. So I was aware of, so I must have been, for me to be upset about it, I must have been aware of them yeah. when I was three years old. So it's kind of always been there. The, the big tricky and the big life lesson for me was, so I started doing gigs, you know, I started playing instruments uh, when I was about 12. Um, I got a drum kit when I was eight, but it went in the shed really quickly once mum yeah. and dad realised how loud it was. Um, it was the I, noisiest instruments on the planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. basically. Um, <laughs> and then I pulled, I pulled that out of the shed when I was 11, didn't really play. And then when I was about 12, I started playing guitar. Um, yeah. and, um, and then I just started and I was doing gigs by the time I was 15 on a bunch of different, on guitar and bass and drums in different yeah. ensembles back then. And so when you're playing three different instruments in three different bands at a young age, you just learn really quickly. But it's funny because people are always, one of, one of the interviews, one of the questions that people ask me all the time is what instruments you prefer and stuff like that. And I really don't. And I, I realised a few years ago that I only ever learned instruments as a facilitator uh, to be a record producer. I think I was always, records is my currency. Like I, I still... Like there's a the soundtrack to everybody's lives, but the idea of being able to be part of that conversation yeah. is what I'm meant to be doing. Um, yeah. Whatever stuff yeah. that I do from an industry point of view, like video yeah. clips and, and photos and being an artist and being a record uh, a record label and all, uh, writing magazine articles and, and everything else I do is yeah. all just coming from the same sort of place. Yeah. The tricky thing so, about it, Mark, so I'll just, I'll just finish off this one thought. Go on, um, mate, sorry. It was... Um, 
the hard thing about it was that, you know, I grew up in a family of hard workers and we had a family business and um, I actually was doing quite well in my 20s. You know, I had a house when I was 20, but I was too scared to admit to myself um, that this was what I wanted to do. So yeah. I didn't I didn't actually go full time despite all of this sort of stuff going on um, until I was about 31 years old. And then I felt like I had ground that I had to make up. And so yeah. I've been pretty hard working since then. So I think I've always known that this is what I wanted to be, but it took me a long time to realise that yeah. I guess. Well, so were, what, your, were, were, oh, your, were your family, sorry, Hamish, were, were your family a musical family when you were growing up? My mum and dad... parents my, must be very patient to have a drum kit. Mum and dad, mom and dad I, I, I've been blessed with the greatest parents ever. ever. My dad is a music fan, yeah. but we didn't even have a stereo in, in the house when we were growing up. But I've got an elder brother. He's only 20 months older than me, and we, we were pretty much inseparable growing up. And my uncle was a guitar player and he used to build his own guitars. And so at one point we borrowed one off him. And the idea was that I played drums and my older brother would play guitar. But after about a week, he, he thought it was too hard. So to, to annoy him, I learned. And to, to, come, <laughs> I, to, to prove to him how easy it was, I just learned to do it. And then he yeah. got the shit and, and started to learn as well. And we still playing bands together. Um, That's such a younger brother thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, it was yeah, very, yeah. very much yeah, so. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> look, we, but, you know, when I do shows in the album show, one of the, the bands I'm in, um, I tell a lot of stories and, and a lot of them come down to my dad. You know, we were we were milkmen growing up. So yeah. all through my teenage years, me and my older brother would be in the milk truck at three o'clock in the morning and my dad would be cranking Triple M, you know, as we drove through the streets of, you know, um, Malabar and South Coogee and stuff like that. And those memories are the things that have really embedded in me of how music felt when I was a teenager, as I was learning about music, yeah, having those experiences with my dad, and then him kind of almost stopping the car to listen to the end drum fills in um, "Rock and Roll" by Led Zeppelin, and going, "How do they do that?" Yeah, you know, oh, great, and, track. great track. And there's a, and there's a million stories of things like that that my dad would we pick out. So dad ended up being a big influence, despite the fact that he doesn't play anything. Yeah. Oh wow, that's amazing. Mm. And. And one one thing I wanted to just touch on, Michael, is when you said to you, you know, you when you were telling the story earlier, um, you said that you know doing doing the being a you know music producer is what you wanted to be since a kid, and you knew that. But um, how how did you then jump? Like, how did you then kind of jump ship into it? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, if you yeah yeah you absolutely know what I mean. And look and, when. When I was when I was seventeen, I was I was a pretty clever student, and I was yeah. doing gigs, like I said, from when I was fifteen. And I said to my parents, uh, when I finish my HSC, yeah, I want a four track. Um, I I had cassette players, yeah. and even by the age of say fifteen, I was already doing recording onto one cassette player, and then bouncing it across to another cassette player, and yeah. and over something over the top of it. And I knew that that wasn't really working. I had like a couple of microphones to hang over the drum kit, but really cheapo things that you bought from kind of Radio Shack. Um, and I knew that there had to be something better than that. And so um, as my graduation present, I bought a little Tascam 4-track. And man, I worked that thing to death. Like I just recorded everything I possibly could. That was when I was 18. By the time I was 21, I'd kind of found a reel-to-reel 8-track. Yeah. And, um, and then by the time I was about 24, I yeah. had an option to either go and do a recording school thing 
Mum and dad kind of said, we can either put $15,000 towards a recording school or $15,000 towards gear. And I chose $15,000 towards gear and got my first 16 track recorder, which is still outside and, um, and, a, and a console and a few more mics and then rented a premises that I could only really, I, I thought, yep, two year lease. And I was out of there in six months because I went broke. Um, <laughs> and, um, and off we went. So it was just, it was just a gradual thing. It was just amassing gear. And then you end up in a room like this, you know, 30 years later. Michael, I would love to hear some of those recordings on the four track. Just uh, to know I've, if, I've if, you had, if you had the same terrible experiences. You know, when you, you first start writing songs and you're like, oh, God, this is going to be oh, a hit. Man. This, this is a hit. Mum, this, nah. is, this is your house. I bought your house. And nah. I'd love to hear some of those, some nah. of those tracks. Next time you're in our plane to you, they're terrible. Like I did the have this thing, kid was, early years. That's what you could call it. Um, the, I mean, I've I've released a lot of records, and I was signed to an American record label in the late nineties as a power pop artist. And I've thought about going back and releasing some of the four track stuff. And I've actually found the four tracks and put them onto Pro Tools. Yeah, they are not worth doing any work on. Trust me. <laughs> like this. There's nothing back then. I didn't know what I was doing and and I thought, and I was so serious and depressed and everything was in a minor key. And, you know, and then I, I by the time I was about 19, I joined a serious band and all the guys were older and they were more experienced and they had a development deal with Mushroom, but I was just a drummer in that band. And so I went very quiet for a few years while I was learning how to be in a serious band. Um, and so, yeah, there was a brief period of, of recording and then there was me being in a band for six or seven years before I went to the next kind of level of recording people, other people. Yeah. Oh, wow. And when you, and then you said you're at 30, you were kind of, you know, now doing it as a, as a day job and, and professionally, but um, like, like when you, when you started, was it, was it hard to kind of like, you know, uh, I suppose, find, find clients and stuff like that. And to get your, get your name out. Like it sounds, it sounds like you jumped from oh, 24 to, you know, to 30, that, that was kind of the testing grounds. Yeah. Well, look, I had, um, like I said, I built a house in my mid twenties. Yeah. Um, um, because being a milkman was pretty profitable. I built a house and, but it was always built with a studio in, in the basement. And, um, I, I started recording other people in 1992 um the studio the first studio i put together in mascot was just a room and it was basically just a place for my band that i was in the serious band to store the gear and rehearse and and make our own records but a few people would heard the demos that we did and asked if they could come in and do demos people who were on a scene and then i started saying to people i've got a little studio but man i was cheap i was like 20 bucks an hour and that's just even back then it wasn't sustainable to be 20 bucks an hour um, but I was cheap, which meant that people came in. And it was in those years that I learned a lot very, very quickly about how other bands work, how to run sessions, the psychology of being a record producer that people don't talk about enough. Like I would say that 85% of my job is psychology. Plugging your microphones. <laughs> really don't I know it? Don't yeah. I know it? Knowing when to say to a vocalist, that's enough, or off we go. That's the real skill. And I started learning that stuff. And so what happened is I started to um, get a, a little bit of notoriety in, in demo world. Yeah. And then it just took one of those to get onto Triple J and then people started to come to me. And then I had a real, from about, and then I moved into, yeah, I was in the basement of this house after the first studio went broke. And um, 
And then people started coming to the basement of the house. And then I started having a good run of, of success with bands breaking through on Triple J. There were bands like 78 Saab and Youth Group, their first recordings yeah. I did um, in my place, um, John Reed Club. And a lot of these bands who were kind of indie rock bands in the mid to late 90s, yeah. I had my fingerprints on a lot of that stuff. Plus, I was producing a power pop band called the Pyramidiacs. And the Pyramidiacs, nobody knew who they were in Australia, but they were really, really big in Spain. And it's that classic, yeah, man, they're big in Spain. They actually were. And I only know this because try and follow me with this, boys. I'm I'm I get on pretty well with everybody, but the drummer from the Pyramidiacs left to form a band with me, where I was the lead singer and bass player, and I replaced him in the Pyramidiacs playing drums. <laughs> so what could possibly go wrong in that scenario? So the guy left the band to form a band with me. And then I replaced him in the band that he just left. But everybody got on well, because people have always known that, you know, I stay out of kind of infighting and stuff like that. But then I did go and do a couple of uh, European tours with the Pyramidiacs and they were big. And so they would come in and that was how I got into the power pop world. And that's how I kind of went from being just a kid doing demos to actually having a pretty good track record on Triple J and then kind of aging out of Triple J. Like essentially by the time I was, 30 and went full time. Yeah. People wanting to make records with 25 year olds, not 32 year olds. But by yeah. then, I started making records for people overseas through the power pop world that I'd kind of joined. And my notoriety went from being local to being a bit more international. And I had a pretty good run with, uh, you know, I probably did 20 or 30 records overseas. Um, uh, and that really helped kind of get my name out there internationally. So for a long period, I was kind of nobody here, but had a pretty good following throughout Europe and through the States. So Michael, with with the power pop uh, era, I'm going to call it for the Michael Carpenter power pop era. Yep. You know, you, you know, it's like modern times and obviously you just released a great track this week called Newtown with Michael Carpenter and the Banks Brothers, which was awesome. I love the video as well. Thanks, Beautifully man. done. Even in a COVID world, you still managing to, to get out content and it's awesome. Um, so how... What what would you say is is your favorite music to listen to? Because I know I know not necessarily the things we're good at to do are the things we listen to. You know, yeah. I I you know there's no secret. I'm a big Beatles fan. I wouldn't say any music I do sounds anything like the Beatles. You know, and a lot of a lot of artists a lot of artists yeah. are in the same boat. You know. Well, look from my point of view, I grew up on pop music, and we and for you youngsters. My God, I can say that now. Um, if you, when I was when I was growing up in the in the seventies and the eighties, you were going to hear Jackson Brown followed by Stevie Wonder, followed by oh, wow. the City Rollers, followed by um, a hard rock band, all on your normal AM station. It was no big like it wasn't as kind of your soul and your pop. It was just pop music. So yeah. for me, yeah. I started to I, I really locked in very early on the power of pop music, you know, and the fact that they're, you know, you, you listen to Uptight by Stevie Wonder and then you go and listen to Somebody's Baby by Jackson Brown, you go, well, they're pop songs. They, they're obviously very different from a genre point of view now, but when I was growing up, it was just the radio. That was just what was played on the radio. Um, FM radio came in and it was still like that. And I started working the first, I mean, I did work experience at Triple M when it was the biggest station in, in the country and, they played everything. They played everything from your cold chisels to your soppy ballads to everything in between. Um, and so that was, 
for me, there was never the whole idea of genres being this separate sort of thing didn't really come in until much, much later, until probably the 90s when they started to have specialised stations and specialised charts. So from my point of view, it's all just music to me. But the currency for me is always going to be the Beatles and pop music. Now, yeah. I went into the power pop world because I got really switched on to the power pop world through the Pyramid Acts and finding out about people like the Raspberries and Matthew Sweet and Teenage Fan Club. And they switched me on to all that stuff. And I... And I, and I got signed to an American record label who were a power pop label. So I was power poppy. And I went and started to play at a lot of power pop festivals overseas. And I started to work out what was going on there. However, by the time I'd kind of released my second record as a power pop artist, I kind of got a sense of what the power pop scene was like. And it was a lot of people in their 30s writing songs about 20-year-old girls with pretty crappy lyrics and it was all all style and not a lot of substance. So, mm. and at that point, I'd gotten turned on to which is which is my life, Michael. <laughs> That's not true. I know better than that. <laughs> but at that point, by the by the late nineties, from my point of view, I'd started seeking something else. You know, when by the time I was in my kind of late twenties, early thirties, I wanted something with a lot more substance, and so that led me to. Buddy Miller, Emmylou Harris, Steve Earle, and then back to country music. So, you know, I'd always loved country music, but the country music that I knew came through the Beatles. You know, it was, yeah. you know, you listen to, you listen to, um, uh, I can't believe the album Before Help, Beatles for Sale. Um, and it's got a lot of, you know, Chet Atkins kind of stuff. And, yeah. um, and, you know, it's got Buck Owens with Act Naturally. Yeah. And so it was a very small link from that for me to understand country music. So that's always been hovering around in the background. The, the ultimate thing for me, fellas, is I actually, I'll, I'll give you one more little anecdotal thing that will sum it all up. There was a period after I released my third original album um, where I was a contender. Like I was getting a lot of airplay through Europe. The record that I did which is called King's Roadworks, I went and did an extensive world tour on and sold a lot of records. And for a while there, it looked like I was going to go. I did a, a showcase to, uh, for Bob Harris in um, in the UK and he was right on the whole thing. And yeah. the record companies here and the record companies in the States were really excited. And then my next record came out and it was a great record called Rolling Ball and it sunk like a stone. And I went, well, that's it. My moment has passed. And... It liberated me. Why, why do you think that was? Why do you think that was? Um, it just, you know, it's that thing if, and you see it happen all the time where an artist will be a reasonably hot thing, not that I was that hot, but in fashion for a time. Still hot. Thanks, mate. I'm showing again now. Um, but by the time the wheel turns again, nine months later, mm. fashion has changed or whatever. And, uh, and so that was my moment. But, it was, a, it was ultimately the best thing that ever happened to me because at that point I just went, well, fine, I can do whatever I want now. And then I got really prolific and then I, I really accelerated things and started having more and more side projects. Not long after that, within a couple of years, I had a had an alt-country band called Michael Carpenter and the Cuban Heels and we did a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and so it, it was all, I've always had these kind of careers, you know, like while I was doing the power pop thing, I had a garage pop band called the thinkers um while i was doing the power pop thing i had the cuban heels 
I had another side project called The Super Hip, which was just me and a good friend of mine, uh, Mark Moldray, and our whole thing was coming to this room with no song in the morning and you write the song in the morning and you don't leave that day until it's finished, like yeah. written, recorded and mixed. Wow. And we did two albums. Uh, the first album we did in nine months, the second one took us 15 years. But they're amazing <laughs> records. <laughs> That's true. The first album took us about, about nine months and then we, we started straight on the second album and it just took us 15 years to finish because kids and life yeah. and stuff like that. So I think that, like I said, the, the best thing is by not having a chance of being a rock star, I've had the most creative life. And I think I'm up to, by the time this new Banks Brothers record comes out in February, I think since 1999, it'll be 37 albums or something like that. Wow. Wow. And and it's fun, man. It's just fun. I think people forget, yeah. they get their head up their ass about the industry and making a living. You forget that you're supposed to have fun doing this stuff. Yeah. I didn't come into it to make a living. I came into it because this is my creative conduit. This is what my life's all about. I'd love to make more money out of it and I'd love to um, be a rock star. But like I said, you know, I, I often use the, the analogy called the Eagles analogy. So imagine being in the Eagles, and I love the Eagles unapologetically. Yeah. But if you're in the Eagles, you're going to make a whole yeah. bunch of money and you're going to play 36 songs for your whole frigging life. That's it. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's all true. people that's so, that's play. So true. You know, anytime yeah. that you're Joe Walsh, you're playing. You know? Um, and so from a, from a music view, a fun career. Yeah. Yep. Um, Michael, there was just a little bit of lag there towards the end of that, but uh, I, I, I think, I think it's, I think it's better now, but one, one, one thing I would like to like to say, like, do you like, what's, what, what, what's the model like, you know, for, for you, like, and we've had, you know, we've had musicians on and it, you know, every, um you know people that work work at record labels and stuff like that but it just seems like you you have like you're you're a record producer but you're also still playing music and stuff like that and like i i wanted i wanted to ask as well like how does it work for for you as a record producer like do because if you're the artist you obviously get royalties and things like that um and if you're if you're the record label you know you front up money for the um doing that is it just the the process of making the record or do you do, is it royalties later on if you make i'm just i'm just curious uh royalties don't in my life i mean it's one of the things i, I get my knickers in a twist a bit when people say oh it was so much better when there were cds now nah, i had record deals and i like the record that sold really really well for me i ended up when i got my royalty statement for it owing the record label 1500 bucks you know, it's just the way it goes. Like there was never, it was wow. ne unless you were really in, real indie. <laughs> like one of, there, there's a lot of fallacies about the record business. A lot of people think that it was better back in the old days because you could make money from selling CDs or selling vinyl. You never did. You never did. You made money from going out and doing gigs and selling merch. Yeah. It was like the amount of big Australian artists that made money from um, from selling a lot of CDs is minuscule. So, mm. uh, especially when you're talking about major labels, because major labels always had a tendency to want to keep you owing the money, yeah. especially with the kind of money that was being thrown around in the eighties, you know, to, to get even a basic video was going to cost you 35, 40,000 bucks. Um, and yeah. so you, there was, 
the the model is is just it's just different. But the thing that's better about it now is that um, you you can actually do whatever you want. You don't have to go and ask somebody to give you money before you can do anything. So that's the great thing about that is that you can just be creative because you want to be creative. The bad thing about it is that everybody's doing it and it does muddy the waters for, for people. So it's tricky. But in terms of the back end for things, there really isn't any. There, there's like, there hasn't been. I mean, it's funny because I did the first few records with a record label. And then when I did, my, I've done a string of covers records called Soup, Songs of Other People. The first one of those I did, the American record label, I offered it to them and they said, look, you should just do it yourself. You should kind yeah. of just do it yourself, just sell it, whatever. I made more money from doing my own record than on my record deal. I'd printed up 500 copies of them and sold them directly from Bandcamp back in 2001. And I made money. And I was like, how do you make money from record sales? You know? And so yeah. it's, there's no model. I guess the thing about it is that there isn't any model and, I reckon in here I have a vocational conversation two or three times a week with people. And I'm not even kidding about that where people come up to me and they say, how do you exist as a creative in this world now? Like you, you're a record producer. How do you stay afloat? And the answer is always disappointing to them. I say, don't just do the one thing that you want to do. You just yeah. can't afford it. There's, there's just about no artists around the world who were just doing the one thing that they're meant to do. There's, there's just about none because it's not sustainable. It really isn't sustainable. It's, like I'm a busy it's, record it's also, producer. It's also good to be doing other things as well, man. You know, like it keeps for you um, to go in a studio every day and, and you know, they say you never work a day, uh, you never work a day in the job that you love, you know, and you're, you're there and you're, you're in the creative process every day. And I've been in there with you, you know, finding 14 Japanese wind instruments hung up on the wall over there. Let's put them on the record. And, and nothing is out of the question. So you can do that, get get some money for it, you know, but that does not just dictate your life. You are able to go and and be free, you know, and go and go and play live shows. Like you, you do the album show, Hamish, which yeah. you, you have to go and see, which is, Michael and the kind of like the travel and Wilburys, they, they come together, these elite musicians, and they go out and they'll play like hits and requests of, of some of the best artists, the artists we love. Yeah. And like what, what I'm saying is you're, you're, you're so lucky, Michael. I, my belief is you're so lucky because you are able to get out and do that and still be involved in, in the industry, you know? Yeah, look, I... Uh, there was a thing that happened in here. Um, I had an assistant who's a really good friend of mine and I got tired of people asking me, all right, Michael, we love working with you, but do you know anybody like you who makes videos? And I turned around to my assistant at one particular day and I just went, do you reckon we can make videos? And she went, yeah, how hard could it be? So we went and bought a camera and we just started making videos. And so now probably 30% of my income is, you know, making music videos. And it's great because it's, I understand how to manage a project, you know, it's a budget and it's a timeline and it's expectation. That's no different to a photo shoot or writing a song or doing a mix or making a record. They all deal with the same creative process. Yeah. And so I've just transplanted yeah. that skill set to whatever I do. So I take photos or I do music videos, or now I'm doing some corporate videos as well. And you're right, it does mean that there's a lot of variety in what I do. And it also means to a degree I'm indemnified from 
things like, okay, nobody's got any money in the music industry anymore to come in and make records. Everybody's going through this period now where we've been in lockdown. There's no gigs and people are really scared to spend money because there's no government support. So my, um, my studio business has been quiet but I've got other things that I can do that are all still kind of tangents from the same sort of key thing, but it means that I can still afford to pay the rent next week. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's, I see people's disappointment when, especially with young record producers where, where they say, how can we get to the point where we're, you know, doing this full time like you? And I go, well, you should find something else to support it. Go and work another job. So it takes the pressure off it. You know, it's it's that that thing of um, you want to. I always say you want to avoid eating your own babies. You know, and it's if if all you're doing is this thing, you know, the the day that you can't afford to pay the rent, you're looking at one of the guitars on the wall and you go, well, which one of these am I selling? You know, so that I can afford to feed my kids next week. And at the start of the year, when things started to cancel, I literally went and wrote a list of the first five things that I would sell. Oh, really? yep. Do you do you feel pressure when you're in the studio and like before you I mean I know you're playing in bands, but before you had these these other side hustles, carpenter side hustles, before you had these things going on, do you ever feel pressure in a studio to obviously every day you're going to work and you're doing your best work, you know, you're trying to help be as helpful as you can be as accommodating as you can deal with egos as best you can. Do you ever feel pressure when you're actually recording? Do you have that in your mind of, I have to make it good. So this band comes back. I have to keep my name going. And that kind of takes away the love aspect of you doing the job itself, you know? Well, it doesn't take away the love aspect of it, but, um, like I'll, I'll give you an example. I had a great artist, somebody who who I've been working with since they were about 18 years old and she's about 22 now and she continues, she's in the country music world. She continues to rise. Yeah. She hasn't released anything for a few months, but there's expectation now for the next single. And so we finished the recording of the next single um, on uh, Monday. And I was, I had a, a, a confidence crisis because I know the expectation from her management from her is high for this next thing. And I was freaking out. And I actually did something I've never done before, fellas. And that was I, there's a few different producers here in uh, in in the building. And I actually sent a text message to one of the other producers who's really a great, uh, a great contemporary pop mixing guy. Yeah. And I scoped yeah. him out for how much he costs because I just I didn't know whether I was gonna have the skill set to do what these people needed. And um so, yeah, I had a bit of a confidence thing. And as it turned out, you know, he gave me a quote and I ran it past the management and the artist and the artist said, no, we want you to do it. We believe you can do it. But I'm feeling a bit of pressure about it. Like I did a bit more work on it today. And there is a sense of, okay, if, it, if this single doesn't go for, for this artist, is that my last shot? Do they then go, oh, well, maybe we should be working with somebody else. So you do always feel a sense of that awareness, but you try to park it because... You know, yeah, I've also yeah, got yeah. a pretty good track record. There's people who, who I've who I've been working with now who came in here as 18-year-old kids and every record that they've made in their whole career has been with me. So you've got to take that on board as confidence. You know, you, you've got to know that what you're providing to people is something that makes them feel good or else they would go to other people. And people do go to other people and they come back and they, and they should do that. But um, 
yeah, you, you, my biggest concern at the moment, and it could be just because I had my birthday yesterday, is that um, I am starting to age out from some parts of the industry. You know, I'm not like I'm in the country music scene predominantly now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 19 year old girls and guys don't necessarily want to work with a 55 year old guy, no matter how good he is, unless he's got a really killer track record. And even then, they probably feel like I mean I'm older than their dad so there's there is a, a slight disconnect for some people and then there's other people who understand the track record understand what I've done who are just kind of like well you're our guy and yeah. so it's not a specific thing where I feel insecure uh, about whether this pro whether I'm going to do enough for a project but I'm very aware of the fact that you know it's a young person's game and there are some aspects of it that I'm starting to age. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it right now. Everybody, no, no, no. welcome I'm, to Cockwoman Corner. No, no. I'm not being negative. No, 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 no. I'm not being negative. I'm very realistic about this stuff. I'm being very pragmatic about it. And you have yeah. to be aware of this sort of stuff. Yeah. I've seen a lot of my friends who've had their head in the sand about all this sort of stuff, and then they turn around and go, where did all my work go? So you've no, got to be Michael, Michael, I, I, I have worked with so many producers, right? So many. And... I, I think I mentioned this on, on the show, Hamish, when, when yeah. you had us on before the invasion. When, when I, whenever I would record, I'd be, I'd be dreading it, you know, because the genuine, like, oh, my, and, and it's just the stress about it. Are we going to get done in time? Will things take too long? Will, will we do it? When, when Stu, Stu Greenwood, shout out Stu, when, when he, he introduced me to Michael. Firstly, I, I'd heard the records because I came into the Grand Union a little bit later, you know, and I had to learn some of the records. And then I was going in to, to do my vocals and we were going in to record songs. Michael has a way of just completely calming that situation, you know. And for me, for me personally, to have somebody, and, and I'll, I'll quote you, Michael, from a, you know, a vocal session we did once. And you, you just... You, you, you just pressed on the button and you went, Jack, you're singing this really, really well. Now I want you to perform it for me. Yeah. And and that moment is is what separates you from anyone else because I've been in studios where I've done, you know, a couple of good takes and they went, yep, that's it. That's everything we need. And, and, and then in my mind, I'm starting to think, oh, I've got this down. One take, Jake, you know, this is it now. Call me Frank Sinatra, right? And then the record comes out and I go, I could have done that better. I, I, could, have, I could have delivered that, you know, with more guy. I, I could have performed that. So for me, Michael, everything you've just said then, I, I know you, you're trying to be pragmatic and, you know, you've just had a birthday and you might have the birthday blues, which we all get every year. But, no, but, but you, 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 I think, man, I think you're gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay because we don't get that from anyone else, and we get that from of, you. The other side of the coin you know? is, is one of the things that, uh, and look, and that's that's very kind of you. But look, I, I the other side of the coin is, apart from being pragmatic. I'm also, I've been in a lot of studios. Like when I was growing up, I was in a lot of studios with a lot of producers and man, and this was the late eighties and early nineties. It was a very, very different time where the budgets were extraordinary and the drugs were particularly <laughs> extraordinary and everything, <laughs> and everything took more time and stuff like that. 
but I also saw a lot of anxiety and a lot of angst in, in creative environments and it never really made sense to me. So one of the things that this place and my production style has going for me, and, the, and this is the thing, anybody that enters into this space, they get it. Getting them into here is the tricky part. Getting when they're here, convincing them that I'm the right guy for the job is actually really, really easy. So one of the things, like I said, um, I've been in a lot of a lot of creative situations where people said, you know, you have to have anger, and you know, people need to be dissatisfied and agitating to make great art. Yeah. I've done that, and it's not. Can we swear on 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 yeah, this yeah, podcast? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You do whatever the frick you want, mate. You know what? People are paying a lot of money to be in this room or to be in recording studios. And what I don't want is I don't want people walking out going, that freaking session I did was agony. Yeah. Just swear, swear, go on, it's fine. Just swear. No, I will. Eventually. Uh, it'll happen. Commit, commit, um, commit. No, 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 wait on, wait on. I've got to choose my, my moments, mate. You don't want to you know, spoil <laughs> the waters. So one of the things for me, like, I'm a really big, big believer in... in in being able to facilitate good life experiences. That sounds yeah. kind of airy-fairy, but, you know, us musicians going in and making a record, being part of that conversation about making a record, it's a big thing. Some people might only do it two or three or four times in their life, making a record, being part of that conversation about creating music. So you want people to have situations where they're being pushed, encouraged, supported, facilitated, agitated where it's, where it's possible, but mostly understood, you know? And that means that when I've got a band in here, everybody's say um, is important. You know, I always say to, I always say to people that um, there's no bad ideas in the recording studio. You hear them all. And, and the way I've got my studio set up is that we can hear things quickly and then we can decide whether it's a good idea or not. But there's actually very few bad ideas, but, when there's politics and people and you know the dynamics of bands, it can get really, really freaky because you know yeah. the drummer might have a really good idea, but the lead singer doesn't want his ideas to come through, and then the drummer's dissatisfied. And nah, I always say that if if people have had the idea enough to verbalize it, then you got to hear it, and then you can yeah. decide after that. And then if it's a good idea, I take credit for it. Yeah, <laughs> always. Do you, Michael, do you? So go on, Hamish. You go, mate. All right, go I've on. got I've got two questions You've here. Got this brewing thought. Go for it. Um. Well, well, one's not a question. I I I think Michael, if you if you weren't doing music, I think you should join. Go, you know, go into politics because that you know <laughs> I like how you said that. That was very you know. I wish more people did that. And my yeah. second, uh, my actual question is here: is uh, how much of a diva is Jack in the studio? Can I speak freely? Yeah, yeah. Go for it. He's going to drop the F-bomb. He's going to drop the F-bomb. <laughs> you know what? Look, in, in all honesty, and, and and I will be really honest about this, um, there's nothing better for me in in in, a, in this room yeah. when we're doing stuff and, and you can see people's sense of excitement start to grow. Yeah. Um, Stu is our, our great friend, and Stu, his excitement is contained. He contains his excitement. And he's very quite measured in the way he he does things. We'll do something, and Jack will be like, he's about his head's about to explode. So he's 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 actually really amazing to have in the studio from a vibe point of view. And look, not everybody um, is like that. You know, there there are situations where people are getting excited about things, but they're very suspicious. 
they're waiting for it to go pear-shaped or whatever. So the personalities that you see in this room are really, really fascinating. But having somebody like Jack is actually pretty great. He's not a diva at all. He's actually, Jack, we'll speak about you to your face. He's a great singer. And, the, and from my point of view, he's a singer that I can direct. And that's kind of the dream because, you know, like I'm a singer as well, and I've got limits to what I can do from a singing point of view. But in my head, I know the way that I want things to sound. And so it's great to be able to push singers and go, great, can I have a bit more story? And one of the things I say, and Jack's heard me say it before is, you know, you want to, want to tell a story without using your words. You want to use your expression to tell a story and not all singers can do that. I mean, I've, and I always say to people too, that there's a, there's a big difference between having a good voice and being a good singer. Just because you've got a good voice doesn't mean you're a good singer. I've had plenty of people in here who I've had to instruct them on how to emote. Yeah. They don't get it. But then I've got other people in here who can barely carry a tune, but they start singing and you're about to fall down because every word has got meaning. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, those singers are the people that we, we've gravitated to. You know, pretty voices can go so far, but people who really can deliver a lyric and tell a story with the way that they're doing it. That's why we... We're so drawn by it to somebody like Tom Waits. Tom Waits is, you know, got a weird sort of, or Dylan, you know, but Dylan, like his voice is strange, but man, when he tells his stories, there's almost nobody better. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's the same as like, I, I think, we, we've had this conversation, I think, hey, it's like, like, as you said there with Dylan, Johnny Cash is the same and Lou Reed and Bowie and, you know, it, it, it's not that, See, I think a problem with modern day society is, you know, you have the voice and you have the X Factor and you're finding people who have got an amazing, amazing vocal. But they will not, I mean, I'm saying this, you know, I hope some, somebody proves this wrong, but they're not going to be the ones who in 30 years have still got something to say on a record, yeah. you know? It's hard. We're, we're, we're in uncharted territory. You don't know what, it's going to be like in 30 years, but I will say this, I'm one of the, I'm, I'm in a, like a producer forum and, you know, we were talking a, a few weeks ago about how people record their vocals. And I'm one of the few producers around who, in, in, uh, who insists on people singing songs from start to finish. Now, and a lot of singers will come in here and go, we'll just do a bunch of verses, a bunch of choruses and you can copy and paste. And I go, nah, 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 nah. You start at the start and you finish at the end. And you tell a story. I don't want the second chorus to sound like the first chorus. You know, I need to know that there's a sense of growth in the story and you've mm. chosen your moments. And it can be a real shock for a lot of singers who've only recorded it the other way to sing all the way through. Oh, but I'll get tired if I sing it all the way through. And I go, well, that's part of the story as well. <laughs> it's true. Because they, they think about all the shortcuts that we can do. Just yeah. because you can't do stuff doesn't mean you should. Yeah, look, when you said that they'll get tired, I was just thinking, you know, like great singers used to do three-hour shows and yeah, they're worried about getting through three minutes. Yeah, but this comes, Hamish, this comes down to that thing of everybody can do it now, you know, like yeah. that's one of the things. I was actually, we don't want to go down this path too far, but yeah. somebody posted a post the other day on Facebook where they said the problem isn't the Spotify is paying shit royalties. The problem is that in the 80s or the 90s, to make a record, you had to have a record company or you had to have saved up a shitload of money. And you had to, it was called, you were in rarefied air to be able to record and release anything. So there was 10 people making records for using a hundred as a scale. 
Now, if we're using a hundred as a scale, there's 120 people making records going out to the same audience. Yeah. You know, and the the the, the um their analogy was diamonds are expensive because they're rare. Rare. If you could go down the corner shop and buy diamonds, then they would be cheap. Yeah. So it's just changing, and that doesn't yeah. mean it's good bad. It's just the great thing about it is that there's never been a time where people are making um, more music. Like yeah. People talk about music industry going to down the toilet. Nah, there's more and more people making records every single day. The only bad side about that is that there's more and more people making records every single day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the quality suffers from it. And and people who shouldn't be making records, who haven't earned the right to make records, are making records. And I don't want to sound like the old man saying, get off my yeah, lawn. Yeah, yeah. But it's absolutely true. There are people who I see it all the time. You know, there's a project that I'm working on this week and the guy is lovely and I hope he doesn't listen to this. Um, but in another world, he probably shouldn't be making a record. But yeah. he is, and I'm happy to be facilitating him. And he's having a great time, and he's pushing himself creatively, and he's having a great, great life experience. So I'm all for that. Yeah. But you know, 25 years ago, he wouldn't have been in the studio. Yeah. Oh, look, I think you. I think you're making a great point, and I and like, and you know, you 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 see it around all the time. Like, you can't help it if you start to follow like music pages and stuff. But the one thing that it does, though, it gets you like now when you see people releasing music, you're not as I like. I don't feel personally. Like, I'm quite young, but I don't feel as excited about it as I did a couple of years ago. Do you know what I mean? Like, because it feels yeah, like absolutely. everyone's doing it. Yep, absolutely. And from an artistic point of view. Um, it's actually hard to get people excited about anything you're doing because yeah. um, there's no sense of event. Um, yeah. I've been criticised by even people who are kind of long-term fans of being too prolific um, because they can't keep track of my releases and stuff like that. But getting a release to feel like a special thing is really, really hard these days. It's yeah. really. Do you hard. think that's? Do you think that's why there's no? The, you know, like. Do you think that's why there's no rock stars anymore? Because there's that many? Yeah, I think that there's lots of rock stars. It's just that there's nowhere to put them all. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I think that we're going to have a problem. I mean, we're going to have a problem in this. Um, well, it's not a problem. It's just the situation has changed, you know? Like, we still hang out for uh, Cold Chisel's next reunion tour because in a lot of ways, they were the last great Australian rock band that became yeah. really that big, but there's been nobody. And I'm not just talking about rock bands. I'm talking about high profile artists who are now the people who are going to be playing festival sized venues in their fifties, you know, and what we're dealing with now and nothing against these people. I'm just mentioning the names and talking about, you know, David Campbell, Guy Sebastian, Delta Goodrum, and people of that kind of ilk. And then again, there's nothing wrong with those people, but then they, comparing them in stature yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to the people that we, to even somebody like a Powderfinger. Do you reckon if Powderfinger decided to do a reunion tour, which they probably will never will never do, but if they did, they'd sell 5 million shows in about a week because they were they were the last big Australian rock band in a lot of ways. Yeah. So it's, it's just changing. Look, one of the things we've got to be aware of, okay, um, Somebody was telling me about 1988 the other day. They said, um, you know, something's happened in 1988. Now, I remember 1988 very, very clearly, right? And that was 34 years ago. But in 1988, 34 years was before that was 1954. Yeah. 
you think about the changes that happened to the whole industry pre-Elvis, pre-Buddy Holly, and then you got into 1988, which is 34 years later, and it's Peter Michael Gabriel <laughs> yeah, and Michael Jackson, and now we're 34 years later. The expectation, of, I get cranky at my old man mates, yeah, you, know, yeah. oh, you know, things aren't the way it used to be. It's like, yeah, they, they shouldn't be. Nothing is the way it was 35 years ago. It shouldn't be. That's fucking civilization. Yeah. You know, so... I'm, I love the fact that it's all changing. I worry about the, the lack of value in, in music, but it doesn't, but I also kind of like the fact that people get to be creative now without a net. They don't need to satisfy anybody. They don't need to go and beg a record company to go and make a record. They can just fucking do it. Yeah. And I yeah. think that ultimately creativity is going to triumph always. Yeah. When you remove commerce and finance and, and being able to pay for something. What do you think the 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 solution is to really getting the best the best stuff come through rather than it just falling into into an algorithm and somebody's you know because um, because with the Spotify algorithm it's weird right because some people you know for trends or whatever get put into different things and you you listen to two songs and one could have ten thousand streams but one doesn't have that many streams on it but it's you you know you 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 just you go back and you listen to that one again not the other one you know what i'm trying yeah, to say yeah. like how do we how do we fix it so it's like yeah yeah music with that i don't i, I, I don't i actually don't know i you yeah, know on what what you viewers and listeners out there don't want to do is go and look at the views on my youtube page because it's fucking embarrassing yeah but my my answer to to the question and it's a really good question is the industry does tend to sort people out. Like if you're a stayer, stay, just be persistent, keep on plugging away at it, keep on building and building and building and show a level of commitment to it. The, um, the music industry, the music world is filled with people who at the age of 28 with a wife and a kid and a job working in a bank, nothing wrong with that, have decided that the music industry is too hard. Um, I, I read something the other day that, you know, um, 90% of people who were successful were on the verge of giving it up, giving up just before they broke through, Yeah, you know, or something like that. It was something like the amount of people who were just about to give up just before they're about to make their difference. So I think about that, the idea of being persistent. That's why I keep on doing things. The good thing about that is a consolation prize is you get to do this. You get to be creative. So even if you don't ever break through, and I'm never going to have a massive audience, but fuck, my life is going to be um, it's going to be defined by the amount of fun that I had, a as an artist, as a writer, as a producer, and as a creative working with people, like and changing people's lives in this room, who and them changing me as well. So as a consolation prize to becoming a rock star and having millions and millions of dollars. It's been a pretty good life, you know, like yeah. I'm a 55 year old guy wearing a baseball cap and a Star Wars T-shirt, whereas a lot of my friends are probably doing something they don't want to be doing today. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my answer, and again, it was a very, very good question, is you have to stay the course. You have to show a level of commitment to your career to keep going or not. And that's fine. But don't complain about not being able to break through if you decide to, to, to leave. Um, and if you do continue, 
revel in the fact that you're doing it and that you're improving and getting better and refining it and have fun with it. Jackie, yeah, see, Hamish, Hamish and I had a conversation the other day about, you know, the 10,000 hour theory. You know, if you put 10,000 hours into anything, you will master it. You will get there. Things will happen. And as you were saying before, I think, I think quality does always prevail. You know, good always beats evil. And as you said, the music industry kind of sorts out things. You know, there, there, is, there is a kind of poetic justice in it eventually, you know. And, yeah. But for me, for me, and as you were saying there, you know, onto, onto 37 albums, what you've done, right? And that's incredible. And my, my kind of view on the music industry, if you would have asked me at 18, what's, what's it look like? 21, I'm the biggest rock star on the planet. These, you know, this is this is this is the way it's going to be. This is this is my life. And the older I get, the more I kind of realize those songs that we go in the studio and do, and the songs Stu and I write together. Those gigs, to be able to go back, and if things don't necessarily work out the way you hope they will and the way you dream they will, you still go back and you listen to those songs and you remember those moments being in the studio. You know. What, what that lyric was really about, how you felt when you sang that lyric, you know. And those moments, for me, are kind of what I love more about music now than the idea of being the biggest rock star in the world. So I think yeah, as you get older, you, you just value things a little bit differently. Your yeah, idea of success is, is different, you know. Well, it's one of the things that I talk about all the time, you know, um, one of the big revelations for me over the last 10 years is realizing that the thing that you're doing isn't going to mean as much to anybody as it does to you. Mm. So you can sit there and go, Oh, I'm leaving behind my legacy. And it doesn't mean that much to anybody. And you look at that and go negative and you go, wait a minute, who cares? Like this is our fucking life, you know, do with it what you want to do. You only have to make yourself feel good for that moment. And the great thing about making records is that at any given time, they're time capsules. You know, you can go and look at that video or listen to that track and you are transported to that place in a totally tangible way. What a privilege it is to be the gatekeeper of that sort of information, you know? Yeah. The, you know the, and, and look, we're, I've been in this room now for 18 years and the amount of people who've been here, sitting here listening to the same pair of speakers having moments that define the next chapter of their life yeah man that's that's got value beyond whether it actually reached an audience or whatever i've seen people coming here who all they wanted to do was release one song and that one song they came in became the portal to five albums live shows all this sort of stuff but it was the one song and often it would be people who could have probably been talked out of it the day before they came in, but they did come in and then they had that experience and it became addictive. And the idea of being a creative became a massive part of their lives. It's not a small responsibility. It's actually pretty good. And it yeah. has value yeah. of itself, whether it has a million streams on YouTube or whatever is actually irrelevant. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Can I ask Michael, are all 37 of your, your, the albums that you've, you know, you've produced, are they, are they on vinyl by any chance? Nah, some are on vinyl. Look, I'm, I'm on the fence about the whole vinyl thing. I mean, I, I, I did vinyl the first time around, you know, right. like, um, and now we're back into it. And 
I don't know. The, some of the pressings I've heard recently of new vinyl haven't been great. And yeah, um, I think I've just become more discerning in terms of the way I like to listen to things. I mean, look, we're, I'm in the world where on one hand, people are wanting me to do mastering for vinyl. Yeah. And on the other hand, I'm doing Dolby Atmos mixes in 7.1.4, which is super high resolution audio yeah. compared to vinyl, which is a funny kind of format because if you get a bad cut, so yeah. there's not much of my stuff that's on vinyl. The, the Banks Brothers record, the country record that we released last year is on vinyl. Yeah. Um, but even that, you know, it's a, it's a pretty expensive exercise to do it. Yeah. And, um, and we only sold like 40 copies. Well, I'm just, the only reason I'm bringing it up is just because like, if I remember as a kid, right? Like you, you know, my daddy, he just said, Hamish, these were all my records. Right. And you pull out these things and they're, you know, they're, 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 they're glorious and they're huge. And you're like, bloody hell. And you keep them and I've kept them all, you know, there's stacks behind me, there's stacks on the other side. And I just want to say like, even, you know, that you're, you're on the back of 37, you know, records or CDs or what, whatever. So, you know, <laughs> you'll definitely yeah, be well, remembered. But look, there's, there's a couple of different ways of going about, by the way, that's just my records. I've, I'm up yeah. to about, 1200 albums that i've produced in here and oh, about 2000 projects you're living forever but, you know <laughs> <laughs> but now, now here so here's the other side of that coin right so you go if we were just dealing with a physical and people forget about this stuff when they go on their rants about spotify and stuff like that back in the old days if you didn't have a record you had to find somebody who did and you go over to their place with a cassette and you'd beg them if you can you can copy it my legacy not that I really care that much about that. Yeah. But if you want to go on, Hamish, you go off this and go, that was a good chat. I want to go and explore what Michael Carpenter's done. Mate, yeah. two button presses and you can listen to a whole frigging catalogue, you know, and yeah. that's there forever. So you want to talk about legacy and things that you leave behind. The accessibility that we have to all of the greatest music in the history of the world now is better than it's ever been. And people complain about it all the time. I reckon we're living in the golden age. You know, anything that we want to go and listen to, you might suggest, you both might suggest to me two records I need to go and listen to. I'll listen to them tonight. That's the greatest thing. Whereas when I was growing up, you heard about records, but you may never have actually heard them. Yeah. Yeah, different... I said the exact I said the exact same thing to Hamish when, when we were interviewed. Yeah. Michael, you just absolutely nailed that. Nailed that. What a lovely, beautiful man you are, Michael. So the, go, the studio right. you're in right now, you're in like art in Love Head Studios. Yep. Yep. Do, do you think your legacy will not necessarily be the records you produced, but the moments you made in the studio in Love Heads? I think the my legacy, and it's funny, you know, the whole thing about Facebook and birthdays is, you know, a whole bunch of people wish you happy birthday on your on your wall and all that sort of stuff. And it feels like a bit of a vacuous thing. But it's actually a bit of a nice reset because yeah. you, you'll hear from people you haven't heard of for a while who you made records with and they will send you messages and say, you changed my life. So my legacy is going to be that people did walk into this room and they had good life experiences. The fact that we made great records and I stand by pretty much every record that I've ever made that we we really milked it for all it was worth to have to get the best out of us that we possibly could and and I feel like I'm still just starting to get good with things now but more importantly is the fact that people did walk into here 
and not only here, it's it's in my creative world, whether it's whether it be bands or I mean, or the videos I'm making, or even students. I taught I've, I've been teaching at a university level now for 15 years. And students still come up to me and go, you were my favorite teacher because you taught about the real creative world. That's something I'm more proud of than pretty much anything. But I do like listening to the records. I go and listen to the records <laughs> I've made and I go. How the hell did I do that? <laughs> There's been a few times where I go and listen to something I, that I did 15 years ago and I actually have to go and pull up the Pro Tools session and work out what I did. Wow. So, yeah. So, no, it's, it's, been, it's been pretty good. And there's still plenty of life for me yet. I've, like I said, I feel like I'm just, I'm starting to get good right about now. Yeah, I feel like we got a bit dark there, and then I remembered, you know, you were you you're, you're fifty, you know, so you 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 still got another fifty left. Today. Oh man, I don't know where I got fifty left, but you know, at some point the arthritis will kick in, or the hearing will go, or it's not like I can get any balder, or I have to wear glasses. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll I'll be going right until the day that you know I drop off the off the the perch, and there's nothing else I really want to do. So yeah. yeah. So Michael. It's, the thing I want to know is why music. Oh, why man. is your why 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 is your Simple. life defined? Why uh, is your life oh, defined by? It? You know, I'll I'll answer this um, everybody in 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 a very very simple way. I challenge anybody to get in a quiet space, a place where you really focus, a pair of headphones, whatever. Put on True Love Ways by Buddy Holly. Put it on. And listen to the first line and not think that it's the greatest thing you've ever heard. It just, it's quiet. And there's a version of it that I grew up with where there's a count in, where there's a little bit of an orchestral people tuning up and stuff like that. And then there's a pause and he just goes, just you know why. And it, it, oh, even just thinking about it now, I'm getting goosebumps. There's nothing in the world. There's nothing in the world that can do that. And I've, Man, you want to talk about privilege? I'll be sitting right here, right? And artists, people who become my friends, like you, Jack, um, will choose to do their vocals sitting right here or just there. And some of my favorite artists have sat right next to me, leaning on my chair while I sung their vocal. And I'll just pull an ear off just so I can hear them having that moment in the room. Man, there's, there's, there is, for somebody like me, where records have been the thing in their life, there is nothing yeah. better than those moments. And I have them most days. Yeah. So like nothing else makes sense like music does to me. Nothing makes sense. Michael, I feel like you're quite enlightened. Can I, can, well, that's what I want to touch on, Jack. I just wanted to ask, like I, I often would, Jack, when you asked me this question the other day and after I heard Michael's thing, I, I'm just wondering, like, if you, if you went through life and you didn't hear any music, you didn't know it existed, you lived on some, you know, hypothetical desert, you know, island and somebody showed you music, do you think it'd be the, the, you know, the thing that they would be able to say is the closest thing that they've had to, you know, like a religious experience if they were isolated because it 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 you know it 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 somehow grabs you like to some degree the it's, words can't really describe and you know it, it, and look you can go and see a movie and and, and it, they can affect you and stuff like that but that feeling of getting in i mean there's a million feelings we can describe but you know that that feeling where you'll hear a song and it's so good that for for a week that's the only song you listen to in the car you just keep on going back 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 because for some reason that song on that day in that environment 
describes your life or speaks to you and so i don't know any i don't know any person who can have that effect on me or any you know other situation that can have that effect and yeah like i keep on saying you know i'm part of that conversation what a what a thing it's it's quite humbling actually yeah do you know anybody have you ever met anybody who doesn't like music i'm yet to meet one um there are I think there's some situational things where people have, because of attachments through family that have not been positive ones, they've convinced themselves that music isn't, doesn't have value or doesn't have valid, but not really. I mean, look, um, my mum always used to say that she wasn't really into music and that we'd listen to stuff with dad. But as my mum's gotten older, she's like my biggest fan. So, you know, and she does go and listen to the things that, that i've done so no nah, I, I reckon i reckon if you don't appreciate it, music you've got one foot in the grave you're missing out on too, on too much <laughs> michael yeah, what's yeah. your mother's name what's your mother's mum? my mum, the most beautiful woman in the woman in the world her name is rose oh, hello oh. rose <laughs> rose and I'm ellen sure they, came out to, to this. They, they came out to party with us last night for my birthday they hung out my old man's 80 they hang out until they were the last ones going Good <laughs> Get rid of them. <laughs> no, I see. I think I think that's like pretty good evidence that you've still got another fifty years. <laughs> and the thing you said about being enlightened, I, I would I would tend to say that I'm very very lucky in the fact that I grew up in a good family with really really great people. I didn't have a tough childhood. Like I I I don't know what that's like, and I and I sometimes forget that you know other people had a harder than me. So I grew up in a situation where I was loved and supported at all times. And so I feel like there's a responsibility for me to be aware of other people and to try to find situations where I can elevate them. If there's an opportunity to do that, I think we have responsibilities to do that as, as humans, if we can, and not everybody can do it, but I feel like I can. I think you're a credit to your parents, Michael, because those early mornings, you know, on the milk float, you and your brother going out before lactose intolerance was a thing, you were on that on that float. And that has led to you, and I, I have called you this, you know, for me, you're the hardest worker man in show business, you know. Well, yeah, Everywhere, we learned that every time it. doing everything. So does that does that come from your parents? You know, yeah, we learned that they were hard workers and yeah, it was all always really simple. If you wanted something, you worked for it. Um, and for me, like when I was growing up, I mean, uh, I, I did milk, milk run through my teenage years and I went to uni for about a year uh, when I left school. And then I went back in, and I that was my job through my 20s was being a milkman. Mm. But every morning between 3 a.m. and 10 o'clock in the morning, Walkman, cassettes, listening to music. That was what I did. You know, I would do it seven hours a day, five days a week. I worked by myself, didn't really speak to anybody. And that was how I just consumed it. And for me, the physical work wasn't hard because I had music as my companion. It was really that simple. It was just an opportunity for me to listen to music for 40 hours a week. Are your kids the same, Michael? Do, uh, do, they, do they have the bug? Yeah, they do. And look, my kids are both, um, are both actually really talented musicians who want to avoid being musicians at all costs <laughs> they, they've seen how hard it is for dad and they want to go and get real proper jobs where they can actually earn some money but they're they're acutely tuned into the beauty of music and we listen to music constantly in our world and um 
And I love the fact that they appreciate it so much and it moves them so much. I think that it's a real, oh man, being able to tap into how great music is just makes life easier and better. It, it, it is really a thing that you can use to say things that you can't actually say, you know, it's, and it's all those cliches, but it is true. It is really true. Yeah. You know, when you were saying before about, um, you know, listening to music while you, while you're working, I've noticed any job that I've had to do where, you know, where, you know, whether it be I'm driving for, you know, my job or whatever, the days I'm driving and listening to music in the car are the best days of work because they just fly by and you, you, you know, but music, this is the thing too. Music is just your constant companion. I remember my brother and I, we used to work stacking shelves at, at Coles when we were young. Like, so I was 17 and he was 19. I mean, you couldn't take Walkmans with you then, but what we would do to get us through, because it was boring, you know, stacking shelves at Coles yeah. when you were a kid was boring. So what I would do, because I knew Beatles records so well, I would just start at album number one and I would sing it to myself in my head. And that was how I'd get through my four-hour shift. It's just... Yeah singing records in my head and replaying them in my head um, while I was working. So it was like the music was there even when it wasn't there. It's great. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Would anyone pull you up on that and just see you kind of, you know, starting to bob along and they're like, <laughs> Oh yeah, we, we got, we got pegged as the eccentric type, but we always worked really, really diligently, but yeah. Um, yeah they thought we were a bit weird. <laughs> I like the idea in your shift in your mind you're going it won't be long yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah true it's it's true and um funnily enough i used to remember all the lyrics then but i don't remember them now now i'm terrible with lyrics yeah <laughs> That's all know, what track would you loop in your head where working at coles i i had help in my in my head you know like <laughs> Well, I, I used to, I can remember really, really clearly that there was one night in particular where in my head, I was pulling apart the harmonies in Nowhere Man. Like, <laughs> like because there's a solid three-part harmony and, yeah. in, and I'd listen to it, listen to it, listen to it and wasn't quite getting it. And I remember during this one particular shift where I got it. I understood the shape of it all and, and the idea of the concept of parallel harmonies. And it was unlocking up, that kind of unlocked a portal to me understanding harmonies so much more deeply. Michael, do you, so I, I, I've said this to Hamish before, he's, he's a visual listener. That's how I best describe Hamish. Hamish hears something and he sees shapes, he sees stories, you know. How, do you have anything like that or do you look at it pretty, pretty? Um, I, I do, I mean, I, no, I think formatted? that, no, well, I think that from my point of view, because I, I played almost all the instruments, I can conceptualise, and I'm, I'm pretty experienced at this point. I'll hear a snare drum and go, oh, yeah, that sounds like that sort of snare drum, mic'd up this way, tuned this way. So there's a shortcut from hearing something to actually being able to replicate it just because that's been the currency of my life since I started recording anything, putting a microphone in front of something and going, oh, when you do that, it does that. But if you do that, it does that. And you just create this arsenal of yeah. things, this library of things that you can just draw on. So I'll hear something now and I'll kind of reverse engineer it. Um, I mean, not, not all the time, but certainly when people bring in stuff in here to use as references, I will be reverse engineering it, trying to understand yeah. how they got that vocal sound or what that effect is or what they're doing there. And then I'll try to put it back together in a way that, 
becomes artistic. And you keep on doing that and you end up with this massive library of things that you can draw on. I mean, I'm in a room full of guitars, not just because they look pretty, it's that they all are functional and do something different, you know? Um, and yeah, you could find that guitar could do something similar to that one, but you know, at this point, after doing it for so long, it's easier just to get that one and have it do that thing. And then when I want it to do something else, I go and grab the other one. Yeah. So I yeah. think it's just a case of just, I've just learned to reverse engineer things and then I've gotten the tools to be able to just do it again. So that's how I kind of hear music. Yeah. I think yeah. you could be an engineer in a, in a, in a, in a past life here. You know? Yeah. It prob probably would have been more profitable. <laughs> yeah some days i wish i got that bug i think jack jack you look like you're straight out of cheech and chong at the moment <laughs> yeah it's 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 just never mind never mind <laughs> so michael where where can we find you where can people find you i always say that i'm the easiest person in the world to find and i'm most i'm really surprised that more of my ex-girlfriends haven't come looking for me <laughs> maybe there's a reason behind that um look uh I don't really believe in websites anymore. I've got a website, but it just sends you off to Facebook and Instagram. And so they're the easiest places to get in touch with me. I'm on all, um, all the streaming platforms and, you know, you can look for things like if you're looking for, for content, you look for Michael Carpenter or Michael Carpenter and the Cuban Hills, Michael Carpenter and the Banks brothers, the super hip and the album show. That's kind of where most of my history kind of is. There's a lot of fun stuff there and there's, there's a lot of different kind of things there. And, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. And certainly any uh, of the listeners out there who, if, if you found this enjoyable, if you've got any other questions, feel free to shoot, shoot me a message. I, I love, like, I, I think I said to you guys just in, in this meeting before, uh, earlier on, I feel like we've got a responsibility to, um, to share things from a vocational point of view. I think people want to know how people are surviving and how yeah. they make it happen. Uh, and it's a hard life, but it is a good life. Yeah. Well, for Michael, me, for me, I, man. sorry, Jack, I just want to I'll cut you off here because I just want to say to Michael, like our, I think our fan base is, is all, all musicians um, or, you know, people that have got a love for music. And um, if they want to get in touch and, and hire you, is it, do they, you know, can they get in touch with you through social media? That's the best platform yeah, if yeah, they just, want to work with you. They can, yeah, they can just contact me on on either Instagram or on Facebook, and and then I usually get over to email and take it from there. Yeah, Pretty easy, beautiful. Michael, you are you you are enlightened. You are brilliant, and <laughs> yeah. man, we we will definitely definitely do this again. Yeah, this I've been got such such a treat to get to, to honestly because. I've met you, you know, a, a good few times now, and that that business relationship we always have. But I, I do have a lot of a lot of love and admiration for you, Thanks, especially man. when I seen you playing all the uh, the Beatles solos brilliantly <laughs> and playing a playing a great show in a pretty, you know, we all know it's a weird, eerie scene at the minute with COVID, and it really is. How how how? What what are your plans? What are you have you got many things booked for Sydney, or are you pretty much seeing how it goes? No, we've got things booked. We we need to just we need to get to the point where the where the public feels confident enough to start to go back to gigs now, and we're not being supported by the government in the right way. And not I'm not talking about from a money point of view, but they've got to stop announcing kind of 
case numbers and they've got to start to let people know that it's okay. We've got to drop some of these restrictions to dancing and, and singing because until that point, people are going to be scared to go and buy tickets and then venue owners are going to continue to cancel shows. You know, I reckon I'm now at about a dozen shows through January and February that, are can that have cancelled because mm. the venue owners can't, can't take the risk on opening up and nobody coming because yeah. then their their staff costs and the spill on effects to that you know, means that yeah 100%, 100%. Have, you know bar jobs are not going to be working that night so we need people to be confident enough to get out there until then every gig is a risk like for me with the album show the album show is this thing that i'm the boss of and if i book a band of musicians and then nobody comes to the show i still need to pay those musicians and it has to come out of mm. my pocket so we've got a responsibility as a community to get back out there and start to see shows. It's got to, and until then, until we we've got the confidence in being able to do that, people will continue to have shows cancelled. It's that simple. And yeah. I don't know how we get out of it. Back back when we were in lockdown, we knew that there was a date where it was yeah. going to end. This, this could go on forever. Look, I think we're starting to get there. Like I I I live in the western suburbs, and it's like we're back already. You know, it's just got to spread out. <laughs> get out more towards the city and then i think we're i think we're fine but i think people are slowly waking up to the idea that i think we're on the i think we're on the other side you know now we're the, you know so. can, yeah the grass looks greener now than it did let's let say two years ago yeah yeah i hope so yeah because i think that there's there's a creative community that is kind of champing it a bit to get back out there and start to actually exist in the real world rather than just being on live streams and you know in recording studios they want to actually exist in front of audiences so we'll see but i've got lots of things planned we've got gigs booked in it's just a matter of whether they actually happen so we'll see yeah. how we go and thank well, you man, we'll, we'll 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 promote anything you, yeah. you know you've got going because i i recommend you as a as a as a live show go out and watch michael carpenter go and watch his band of brothers and sisters that traveling will breeze effect of superstars <laughs> on stage, go and be together. And if you're a musician and you're a little bit unsure and you're, you know, you're a little bit shy and you're a little bit of an introvert and you, you're scared and you're scared about taking that step and you're worried about anything. Michael Carpenter, he's, he's a reasonable price man. He's a reasonable man and he will guide you through it. He will get you through there. And you will create some of the best music and memories you'll ever have. So, and Michael Carpenter, thank you for coming on, my friend. And as all the listeners have now found out, I'm pretty good for a chat. So, you know, I don't, I don't mind a chat. So, thanks, guys, for having me. It's been it's oh, been wow. great, great fun, and and I really appreciate the opportunity to just have a chat, Savo. Oh man, thank you. It's been an honor, dude. I hope we can do something again in you know in the future, or you know, I love to. Anything. I'll talk about anything. I've got an opinion on everything. <laughs>